Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. What a milestone. The fifth anniversary. A lot has happened since the last anniversary. We've covered a huge chunk of empire in the 1840s, which included a lot of pain and suffering. We managed to get Victoria and Albert through their wedding night, and we started to learn about Victorian sex. Personally, it's been hugely busy. I've been through some scary family health crises, but by good fortune and the NHS, we've all come through the other side. But I'm sorry it's made the release schedule a little bit hit and miss these days. I felt we should have a good celebration of the fifth anniversary. Most podcasts fade away in less than a year, so I'm pleased the age of Victoria has kept going, especially since we are only just in the 1840s, and now have another six or seven decades of the era to cover, which should keep us going until I retire, at which point I'll start a new podcast. I want to say thank you to all of you for listening, knowing it brings you some entertainment and fascinating facts is why I keep doing it. I also want to thank all of my supporters on Patreon. I could not keep the show alive without you. I am convinced the long-promised, almost mythical Journal of Queen Victoria is now firmly underway after many failed attempts. This show has a worldwide audience. Many of you, especially my loyal Canadian listeners, have requested topics on their home countries. Listeners have often sent suggestions. I love hearing from all of you, and your ideas and suggestions are all carefully put in my little notebooks such as Greg's request for Victorian football, or many other interesting topics, like the sinking of the HMS captain, or requests for episodes on Victorian theatre. We've spent a lot of time in the podcast covering a lot of the foundations to understand the Victorian era, and how it got started. If I had known it would take me so long to get to this point, I honestly wouldn't have changed a thing. 1840s of where things really change. They were the dying of the old order. They were the screaming birth pangs of the industrial world. Innovations and inventions that changed the world in the 1850s and 1860s often had their basis in ideas from the 1840s. Today's topic is one that I'm really excited about, and it is one of those historical earthquakes we talked about. If Napoleon had lived another 10 years, he would have been photographed. He died in 1840 in remote St. Helena, just as one of the most remarkable Victorian technologies was bursting into life. Today, we are celebrating the podcast anniversary by looking at one of the most pivotal changes in history and in the study of history. Why is photography so important? Today's photos are disposable. Click the camera on your phone, take hundreds, whack them up online somewhere. Forget them till Facebook reminds you 10 years later. Capture the moment when your daughter does a handstand on the beach. Smile and show the world you deserve a date. They just swipe right to choose you. The photograph has also captured great events. That day in Dallas when Kennedy died. The little girl in Vietnam, naked, burnt all over and screaming. The tears of Margaret Thatcher in her private limo 
as she was thrown out of number 10 Downing Street for the last time. The photo I still find inspirational is Earthrise, taken by astronaut William Anders on the 24th of December 1968 from the lunar module orbit. It showed the world as it really is, a tiny and fragile pearl in the vast darkness of the universe. Everything we are is held in that tiny bubble. There's no other planet for us, no colonies to flee to, no new shores to give us refuge if we destroy this tiny, fragile layer of earth and sky keeps our planet a home. Earthrise is the poignant reminder of that. It is obvious that photos can capture great moments, and they certainly make things clearer. There's another point to consider, though. Ian Morris says in his book, Centuries of Change, that for most of human history, people didn't really know what they looked like. It wasn't until the widespread affordability of the mirror that people really saw their own face. The only other options were a portrait or a statue. Those were for the rich. There's a similar thing to remember about the photograph. Before the photograph, you can never really know what someone or somewhere in history were really like. They are gone. After the invention of the photography, the darkness over much of history is gone. There were 102 people on the Mayflower who were called the Pilgrim Fathers. They have claimed to be the real founders of colonial America. Yet, there is almost nothing to show what they looked like beyond a few paintings of some rich individuals like John Carver. The rest of them are lost to history, leaving at most names, a few records, some journals or personal items. In contrast, modern viewer doesn't have to wonder whether Prince Albert looked like his paintings. We can see his photos. We know exactly what Abraham Lincoln looked like, but crucially, photography meant the profiles of the everyday person existed and lasted down through history. One of the earliest photographs was of a photographer's sister, Dorothy Catherine Jet Draper. She was the first woman ever photographed in history. You can look now and see her, strong-browed and bright-eyed, with a square jaw and dark hair visible under her floral bonnet. She's rather beautiful, especially to more modern tastes. The Victorians would have regarded her as too strong-boned and lacking the tiny cupid lips that were fashionable. The lacework on her dress is incredibly elaborate too. Sadly, her hands are slightly blurred, making it harder to see her gloves properly. She was born in Newcastle in 1807 and was 33 when her photo was taken in 1840. Otherwise, you would never have known about her, but you can still see her. A woman born in the reign of George III, who was eight when Napoleon Bonaparte lost Waterloo. Yet there she is. If not for the photograph, her face would have been lost to us. Photos were soon taken of President Andrew Jackson and the Duke of Wellington. Ironically, old nosy didn't have such a huge nose after all. This is the period where the dark veil of the past starts to lift. How did we get to that point though? The journey started with the creation of the camera obscura. What we understand as photography didn't really start though until the early 19th century when Joseph 
Nesephore Nispi invented a process in 1826 using a sheet of pewter coated with bitumen, which required an exposure time of at least eight hours. The soon-to-be-famous painter Louis-Jacques Mendes Daguerre partnered with him to create a better one, using silver-plated sheets of copper and fuming them with mercury vapour. None of this was easy or obvious. We often think of invention meaning a single person has a great idea, makes the product, and then becomes rich and famous. And that's a simplistic fairy story, like saying Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. What actually happens is society develops structures, technologies and techniques that allow experiments with new forms and designs. The iPhone might have existed in the brain of Steve Jobs, but it required breakthroughs in microengineering, material sciences, clean laboratories and perfect industrial presses, as well as new kinds of software. Photography was similar. It was easy to come up with the idea of taking a photograph. What was needed were the advances in chemical science and precision engineering to give inventors the freedom and tools to create new methods and bring it to life. Iodine was crucial to photography, but it wasn't discovered until 1811 by accident. Bromine was discovered in 1826, and soon silver bromide was essential for photography. As science historian James Burke said, quote, On why 300 years separates the first use of glass lenses and spectacles and their use in a telescope. In many cases, there are times when an invention is technologically possible and in which it may indeed appear necessary, as the telescope may have been, but without a market, the idea will not sell. And in the absence of the technical and social infrastructure to support it, the invention will not survive. If we say no man is an island, then clearly no invention exists in a vacuum. The daguerreotype arrived at the right time for society to create the invention and support it. Disposable incomes, industrialization, and improved chemical science all meant that what was technically feasible before became a realizable technology with a market that could support it. Crucially, though, was the question of the trade secret. If Daguerre was allowed to keep his method secret, he might become very rich, but a crucial technology might wither on the vine. The French government appointed an expert to study the method, and he duly declared it real and practical. The French Chamber of Government debated the issue with characteristically passionate speeches. Eventually, they decided the benefits of technology, of photography, too important to the world to be locked behind patents and trade secrets. They gave the inventors a staggeringly huge annual pension, but insisted the technique be given to the world for the benefit of mankind, free for everyone to use, except England, where they took out a patent. As photography grew, the need for extremely high quality paper and pure water became apparent. William Henry Fox Talbot came up with a callotype process. 
This created a negative from which multiple prints could be made and was the big breakthrough. Daguerreotypes were unique and fixed on the copper plate. Photographic negatives, by calotype, allowed cheap mass production of photos. As Fox himself said in a letter presented to the Royal Irish Academy, quote, a photographic process has been discovered which is more manageable and more satisfactory than any which has been used before, and I think the pictures produced by it are more minutely and delicately brought out, and the time for their production at least not longer than is required by any other method. End quote. In 1851, Frederick Scott Archer introduced the collodion wet plate process, which produced a negative image on a transparent glass plate. Although it was surpassed by the gelatine dry plate process in the late 1800s, the collodion process was used for tintype portraits and much more, and in the printing industry well into the 1900s. Unfortunately, Fox was quite aggressive with his patent, and English photography was held back. Fox attempted to renew his patent and wanted to get Archer's collodion process included in the renewed patent, but he lost a lawsuit against Archer. With the patent lapsed, innovation could get underway again, and photography became a runaway commercial success in the United Kingdom. The world quickly took notice. In her seminal essay, Photography, published in 1857 in the London Quarterly, Lady Elizabeth Eastlake noted the rapid growth of photography around the world. Quote, it is now more than 15 years ago that specimens of a new and mysterious art were first exhibited to our wandering gaze. They consisted of a few heads of elderly gentlemen executed in a bestry-like colour upon paper. The heads were not above an inch long and they were little more than patches of broad light and shade. They showed no attempt to idealise or soften the harshness and accidents of a rather rugged style of physiognomy. On the contrary, the eyes were decidedly contracted, the mouths expanded, and the lines and wrinkles intensified. Nevertheless, we examined them with the keenest admiration and felt that the spirit of Rembrandt had revived. Before that time, little was the existence of a power availing itself of the eye of the sun, both to discern and to execute, suspected by the world, still less that it had long lain the unclaimed and unnamed legacy of our own Sir Humphrey Davy. Since then, photography has become a household word and a household want, is used alike by art and science, by love, business and justice, is found in the most sumptuous saloon and in the dingiest attic, in the solitude of the Highland Cottage, and in the glare of the London Gin Palace, in the pocket of the detective, in the cell of the convict, in the folio of the painter and architect, among the papers and patterns of the mill owner and manufacturer, and on the cold, brave breast on the battlefield. She noted the establishment of photographic societies around the world, especially in India, where photography was seized on enthusiastically. The technology was simple and portable and quick, 
or at least relatively so. Good photography remained a skill and an art, and even the most simple shots needed preparation that we would find slow. Photography in India and other places needed a different approach to the easy conditions in Europe. Dust or humidity could get into the cameras through the seams if the light-folding European-style cameras were used. Tropical cameras had to be stronger and were often brass-bound walnut or mahogany to avoid warping or contamination. This added to the weight. Insects often tried to eat the leather parts, causing photographers to resort to various methods to banish them. Collodion boiled at high altitude, causing problems for the incautious photographer who opened a bottle of the stuff too high up a mountain. Damp and dust specks constantly ruined photos in India, especially parts of the photo showing the sky. The difficult conditions drove a lot of innovation, and in a couple of decades, India and the rest of Asia was being photoed from end to end. Nothing was too trivial for the cataloguing photographer. And whilst photos of native woman in dress, Indian street barber cutting hair, might seem boring, they give us an unparalleled view of the world as it was, even allowing the slightly staged nature of some of the shots due to the longer exposure times. There was still the surprisingly difficult question of what photography was actually for. It is easy to think it is just point a camera and get a 100% accurate record of what happened, job done. Reality is a lot more complex. It involves science, accuracy, art, framing, and the concepts of truth and objectivity themselves. Certainly, the immediate utility of a photograph was obvious. The first inventors took pictures of themselves, streets, and their immediate models. The always controversial Lewis Carroll photographed children and created a debate about his sexuality that has raged to this day, along with debates about Victorian attitudes to child nudity in photos and art. Yet, he did also become noted for his photographic skill, and some of his adult portrait shots are first-rate. The French government had noticed that the collection of Egyptian hieroglyphs in photographs would be extremely beneficial. Prince Albert swiftly noticed the larger potential. In 1842, he'd begun a collection on the materials that were available about the artist Raphael. And by 1853, he and Queen Victoria were patrons of the newly formed Photographic Society of London in 1853. The collection had grown to over 2,000 photographs. And by 1876, was the first photographic library of art, breakthrough in the field of art study and fundamental to modern museums, a tribute to Albert's farsightedness. In 1856, in his advice to new officers, photographer and East India Company surgeon John McCosh recommended, quote, every assistant to make himself a master of photography in all its branches, on paper, on plate glass and on metallic plates. I have practised it for many years and know of no extra professional pursuit that will repay him for all the expense 
and trouble, and both are considerable, than this fascinating study. During the course of his service in India, he may make a faithful collection of representations, man and animals, architecture and landscapes, that would be welcome contributions in museums. End quote. That's a landmark moment right there. As books and museums and catalogues filmed up with photographs, Empire became less and less of a distant and unknowable place for the average British person. Naturally, the East India Company saw this as an opportunity to save some money and enthusiastically declared that the government of Bombay would no longer employ draftsmen and would photograph buildings or other public sites of interest instead. This was important as humans in many societies have the painful habit of chopping up old buildings and using them for building material for new ones. That's fine when you are talking about buildings that have no real value, like brutalist architecture, or cholera-ridden slums, or mould-ridden housing. It is more problematic when you think of truly historic buildings. Much of ancient Roman building in Britain was lost to Anglo-Saxons and Normans, pulling them down to use the stones. The ancient Greek Parthenon was almost lost due to neglect and damage, and much as people today hate to admit it, Elgin almost certainly saved the marbles from total destruction, regardless of your views on later ownership debates. It isn't just human thoughtless vandalism that's a problem. The Taliban and ISIS enthusiastically wrecked ancient artefacts, whilst accidents and disasters destroy irreplaceable history. Even today, for example, in 2018, a 200-year-old former royal palace that housed Brazil's National Museum in Rio de Janeiro was absolutely gutted by a fire, and over 200 million works were lost. More recently, Notre Dame was almost destroyed by fire, so the vast photographic archives that started with the Victorians are truly precious. Many Victorians knew how important this was and went to great lengths to get their photos. One such photographer was the intrepid Samuel Bourne. I could do a podcast series on his adventures. He made a number of expeditions in India, repeatedly coming within moments of death, from drowning to altitude sickness to freezing cold and long treks into often dangerously isolated territory, he slogged through it. He often lamented that his equipment just couldn't capture the glory of the scenes he saw. Think of the difference between watching the latest Planet Earth HD by Sir David Attenborough on the BBC, where the pictures are so sharp you are almost in the scene. Then imagine just taking some small black and white photos some of those glorious sights. Bourne was hugely frustrated that, in his words, quote, the camera was powerless to cope with these almost ideal scenes, that with all its truthfulness, it can give no true idea of the solemnity and grandeur which twilight in a vast mountainous region reveals partly to the sense and partly to the imagination, end quote. That last sentence is rather profound. It's a reminder of how much of what we see 
is actually the meaning our minds impose on the sensory data coming in. When I gaze at the blue sky over a green playing field with trees swaying in a gentle breeze, I see the scene. My mind adds in how tranquil it is, how pleasant it would be to rest there, none of which are inherent to the real world. Born kept his patience remarkably well, from times when his entire team abandoned him on a mountain to dragging a portable darkroom, he kept plugging away. His nine-month Kashmir expedition needed 20 loads of photographic equipment and provisions and 42 porters, including 250 glass plates and a 10 by 10 foot pyramid tent to use as a darkroom. He also had the frustrating experience. After a grueling trek into Kashmir, on the way home, one of his porters dropped the box of glass negatives. Months of work were quite literally shattered. He spent a great deal of effort trying to salvage enough glass to put together a selection of photos. He was also frustrated to find that climate changes had created lines on some of his negatives. Interestingly, back in England, readers of the British Journal of Photography were kept up to date with his adventures as he frequently wrote to them, allowing readers to see things that they could never have dreamed of only a couple of decades before. His prized dream was nearly in reach. He made the difficult and dangerous trek to locate the source of the Ganges, fording rivers travelling across high mountain ranges on narrow paths, often freezing cold, isolated and exposed to brutal weather. He reached the enormous Gangrotti Glacier in the Himalayas on the borders of Tibet. There, on the roof of the world, he took photos of one of the prime sources of the river that the Hindus consider most holy. You can only imagine what he must have said when, wait for it, yes, one of his porters dropped the only developing box, ruining the entire expedition. Clearly, he was made of sterner stuff than me, as he actually carried on as a photographer, instead of changing careers for something easier. Vaughan also took a lot of time to try to do natural shots of people, and recorded his frustration that most Indians he wanted to photograph felt it was so important that they needed to stand at attention to show themselves off, whilst Vaughan wanted to photo them being naturally posed. One of the things I adore about Bourne is how good he was at editing his photos to give depth. His photo, View of Naini Tap in Kuman, was a masterpiece. You really, really feel it is a 3D painting captured with crystal clarity. The lake has reflections and the trees in the background feel like they are in the background. I really recommend you have a look at his work online. It isn't half as good as seeing proper copies in a book, but even so, it is quite striking. Hundreds of photos of everything from merchants' houses to canals to the main street in Calcutta to Simla and the mountains with plenty of temples, gardens and palaces. Looking at his photos is a step in time to when the world was much more diverse. Today we build in similar concrete, have similar cars, and the pervasive glass-fronted shop 
is everywhere, along with its loathsome cousin, the concrete block. Diversity exists, of course, not as much as it used to. Jeans, electricity, t-shirts, cars, small supermarkets, traffic lights, and other universals give the modern world more of a commonality than we sometimes appreciate for all our cultural differences. But in the Victorian era, the difference between the United Kingdom and India was vast. Thanks to people like Samuel Bourne, you can lift the veil on that history. Still, it wasn't only the Europeans who were taking photographs. On one of his expeditions, Bourne bumped into a minor Raja and found the chap was a passionate photographer who insisted on showing Bourne everything. He noted early Indian photographer was Lala Din Dayal, who became a court photographer to the Nazim of Hyderabad. Some of his street scenes are extremely interesting for us, as they grab people doing normal things in normal clothes, and some of the palace interior shots he took show the contrasting luxury between the Indian ruling elite and the average Indian on the street. We are lucky that Bourne was a good businessman, having started his life in banking, and he partnered with another photographer, Charles Shepard. Their firm, Bourne and Shepard, became the leading photographic firm in India, supporting a thriving community across three branches and instrumental in the creation and preservation of over 2,500 images of India, Burma, Ceylon, and the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Yet, there is another side to photography. It is not just journalistic, it is also an art form. For some of the early Victorian photographers, the objective was to create art, and art seeks truth and beauty, not accuracy. Early photos were often retouched, edited, negatives put together to create novel compositions, and then finished photos were tinted create colour photos. One notable artistic early photographer was Bruno Raquejas. He produced wonderful works of photographic art in the 1850s, notably of female nudes. He intended many to be sold to painters to use in place of expensive life models. Many are quite striking and absolutely pose in the style of classical or Renaissance paintings. Quite a few are coloured so you can get the spectacle of a real woman from the 1850s looking almost ready to slump on the sofa the minute someone says, OK, let's take a break, as if she had been standing for a classical portrait painting for hours, except she hadn't. She had stood for minutes for a photo. Standing female nude in diaphanous gown is a particularly clear and well-coloured example from 1854 If you are interested, I'll put some photos of them up on the website, along with a lot of other interesting photos of Bourne's and other people's. Besides the classic female nude, Bakehas produced some other photos that I think all history lovers should see. Most notable are his photos of the French Commune from the 1870s, and his photo, Soldiers of the Commune, from 1871, is as interesting as many of the American Civil War photos are for you military history buffs. Still, if you are exploring early French photography, 
a lot of the things you view will be female nudes and called things like woman seated in a kitchen with one breast exposed or female nude on divan, female nude reclining, etc, etc. If you prefer something a little less male gaze centric, there was an explosion of photo portraits, still lifes and landscapes. French photographers were also especially keen on buildings, whilst the British experimented with the mixing of art and photography. Historians benefited immensely from the new technology. French photographer Théodore Devere was a gifted Egyptologist, and his photographs of the excavation of Karnak made photographic evidence far more widely available to the history community than would have been possible with paintings and engravings. His photo of the Temple of Khonsu is especially striking, certainly one for the Marvel Moon Knight fans amongst us. Louis Frossart took some remarkable photos of Lyon when the city flooded in 1856, including water up over the embankments and people getting to shops by boat. The flood wrecked the Avignon area, making tens of thousands of people homeless, sweeping away some parts of the towns that dated from Roman times and leaving economic devastation. The government dispatched Edouard Baldus to photograph the effects. He produced a seven-foot-wide panoramic series of photos to showcase the deluge. Governments no longer had to rely only on reports and engravings to guess the effects of important events. They could look and decide based on photographic evidence. There are heartbreaking photos, for example, of famines in India. You might have noticed in that much earlier quote that Lady Eastlake mentioned the spirit of Rembrandt. Many photographers enthusiastically embrace the medium as pure art, striving for truth and message over accuracy. The Victorians became proficient at composite photos where multiple negatives were used to create a single photo, allowing the artist to add different people into a single photo. The most famous, perhaps, was called Fading Away by Henry Peach Robinson in 1858. He took five different negatives and put them together to form one stunning photo of a girl dying, surrounded by family. According to the Metropolitan Museum of New York, quote, this was one of the most famous and controversial tableau photographs of the Victorian period, a depiction of the final moments of a graceful young consumptive surrounded by her family. It was composed from five separate negatives using a technique that Robinson had learned from O.G. Rijlander. Critics were less concerned with the picture's overt theatricality than with whether forming a single picture from negatives taken on different occasions constituted a betrayal of photography's truthfulness. End quote. Rijlander did some impressive work. It was unapologetically artistic, often calling on Rembrandt and others in styles and subjects. Use of glass plates and negatives allowed him to create mirror reflections and posing. His work, The Infant Photography, is an allegory as a painter reaches down to hand the paintbrush of art 
to the infant art form of photography, whilst in a mirror behind Rijlander appears as the painter's reflection. It is obviously a composite photo, and absolutely had much in common with Renaissance art. His most ambitious work was a vast composition called Two Ways of Life, modelled after Raphael's The School of Athens. It drew immense criticism for being pretentious and worse, including naked women. Although given that it was essentially a homage to the Renaissance, it strikes us as both tame and necessary to the subject matter these days. Rijlander fired back at the art critics. Quote, it is the mind of the artist and not the nature of his materials which makes his production a work of art. End quote. Other critics worried deeply about the honesty of using multiple negatives to create a composite photo and felt it deceived the viewer and risked the objectivity and the concept of truth. Prince Albert disagreed. He ordered a copy of Fading Away and put in a standing order with Rijlander for all future composite photo works. Besides, as Lady Eastlake noted in part two of her essay, even the humblest photo studios employed artists to touch up the most basic portrait photos so that they were presentable to the customers. We've certainly come a long way, and you can now see that the photograph and camera really did change the world. Much of the issues around photography we grapple with today, especially in the age of Photoshop and fake news, were clearly obvious when the Victorians started the industry. Artists created deliberately faked photos. Long exposure times meant artificial sitting or staging. Landscapes were easier, but frequently required imperial power. For all his admirable and interesting qualities, Bourne was a colonial white viewer, and much of what he did was only possible due to the power of the British in India. Still, he and others like him preserved glimpses of a way of life long vanished. By the 1860s and 1870s, photography seemed to be everywhere, from politics to bedrooms to battlefields. Boom of the amateur detective in fiction also heavily referenced the photograph. When you look at those old Victorian photos, hopefully now you will think about the when, where, and perhaps how they were taken. Much of what you see will be cheap portraits for the mass market of the 1870s onwards. But if you take the time, there were proper photographers out there, like Samuel Bourne or O.G. Rylander or Julia Margaret Cameron, who I've sadly not had time to cover today. I could have talked for hours about war photography, the Crimea and the US Civil War, Victoria and Elbert's passion for photography as a hobby, the growth of crime scene photography, and the links between photography, poetry, and literature. We will leave those for another time. This, at least, gets you started on some of the early steps of photography. I hope this spurs you to seek out some genuine Victorian talent and maybe think about how much we've gained and perhaps how much history we really lost before the invention of the photograph. As a personal reflection, I've often wondered if one of the reasons we perhaps seem to judge the Victorians so harshly 
compared to some other earlier historical eras is because photographs make them human to us in a way that the ancient Romans or the ancient Greeks or the medieval societies of Europe or colonial America are somehow less real because they only exist in journals or paintings or statues, whereas the photograph tells us these are our people. They are us. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today. I have one final plea to make before we go. As you know, this show runs on listener support. It is ad-free and independent. I've recently been hit by rising costs for journals, subscriptions and hosting. I would like to buy the new writing program I'm using, which is making these episodes easier to write and produce scripts. I would like to ask my listeners, who aren't patrons, to donate £1 or $1 to fund this via PayPal at Age of Victoria podcast. There's a link to donate on the website. If you enjoy the show, please go to www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com dot com and click on the donate button it's less than buying me a cup of coffee if we bumped into each other and it would mean a lot to have the extra support okay next time will be a regular episode and i'm working on some material for patrons i've also got to get cracking on the long anticipated show on women's clothing take care and bye for now okay thanks for listening everyone if you want to get in touch i'd love to hear from you you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.